Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. My name is Louis Marvin, and I'm the training specialist at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, and this podcast is part of our Male Survivors series. Today, Tanji Reese joins me to talk about economic justice and male survivors who are incarcerated. Tanji is the Senior Program Officer at Just Detention International, or JDI. Tanji, thanks for being on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself and your work with JDI? Hello. Hi. Good to talk to you today. Uh, I'm Tanji Reese, Senior Program Officer with Just Attention International. Uh, in my role in JDI, I do a, I do a lot of different things. Uh, the majority of my work is with our uh, hotlines. We have a hotline based in Michigan and Vermont, so I answer hotline calls from survivors. I also do survivor outreach and uh, rent correspondence with survivors, um, and I help out with some of our education programming. So with uh, folks who work for rape crisis centers and also uh, inmate education. So people are on the inside and learning about PREA and about their rights um, and the responsibilities of the facility. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm really excited to have you on today. I know that um, with our advocates at rape crisis centers who are engaging and working with male survivors in their communities, um, thinking about how they are reaching and serving male survivors who are currently or formerly incarcerated is um, a really important part of that work. So um, what should advocates in our movement know about the realities of life in detention for survivors who are behind bars? Uh, so first, I think it's important just to know that for many survivors, um, folks who are in prison in general, that um, life is very different from us on the outside. Uh, there is a lot of restrictions of freedom um, and, and the not even just the ability to move freely, but the ability to uh, provide for themselves in the same way. Um, and really, the facility is, is responsible for that person. Um, and when we think about this from the side of um, economic justice, it, with that comes even the limited ability to get um, the type of hygiene products that people want and need. Um, and, and most of the times for folks who um, are not, you know, making money in prison, just, it, it's hard for them to get, uh, like I said, hygiene products, um, ability to communicate with the outside and talk to family. Uh, we've had folks who've called our hotline who are even being held on like a $200 cash bail for people who, have, who still have that system. So um, for survivors, the ability to heal, to get support is not the same. Uh, just, and that really is um, expanding just because of conditions of confinement in general and what it's like to be a person who's in prison. Thanks for sharing that. And um, I know that you and I were talking earlier and we talked about a specific survivor who had called um, called your hotline and was hospitalized and accrued um, some hefty medical expenses. Could you could you tell our listeners about um, about that experience and, and what it um, 
what it says about what advocates need to be thinking about when they're thinking about working with male survivors who are incarcerated? Yeah. Um, so on our hotline, we have folks who call for, for different reasons. And um, this particular person called and they were hospitalized and they, you know, got medical expenses from that. Um, and they were charged for for the visit there. Uh, during the time that they were making um, being transferred to facilities, their television broke in that process. So uh, they were given money for the, for the television, but they had to use that money to cover medical expenses and they weren't really able to replace their TV. And they use TV as a coping mechanism. There are very few, you know, very limited things that people can do to help cope with trauma they've experienced. Um, in this situation, they had to make a choice between coping with the trauma they're experiencing or paying a medical bill. Um, and if you think about it, compared to how much people are making, if they do are able to work and have a job, it's about 10 cents an hour. So um, it takes a long time to make $10. It takes a long time to make $5. And if that's your copay, that can be an economic burden. Uh, I spoke to someone recently too, who is really, a, you know, was afraid of, of, of contracting COVID-19 because they didn't want to pay, like they didn't have the money to pay medical co-pays. Um, and in their situation, because they had a pre-existing condition, they're going to be charged $10 for every visit. Um, and if they were diagnosed with COVID-19, they know that they, it's a potential for them to be hospitalized longer term. So um, that's a concern that we don't often think about is that uh, people are not really making adequate money um, and when they are making money, they have to make choices. It's a choice between going to the hospital, having this, or having the hygiene products that you like, or going to um, medical or calling family and friends because everything costs. Um, making a phone call costs, buying stamps costs, uh, even sending emails costs, video chatting, all those things cost. And for people who um, don't really have resources outside or even like I said, the ability to work or, you know, work one of these low paying jobs, there's limited time to talk to family and friends. And, and, you know, for us, we have our hotline. So people are able to call us, but a lot of the stories that we hear or a lot of times we hear, I don't, I just don't have the means to reach out to family or to contact family. And there are very limited um, free phone calls and stamps that people get, especially um, people who are indigent and don't have money at all. And a lot of times people um, were even poor before entering the facility. So if they don't have money when they enter the facility, um, a lot of times that won't change. Thanks, Tanji. And could you share a little bit about how your hotline, um, how your hotlines interact with um, kind of the local work that advocates are um, are doing on the ground. I know you have an interesting program that's a collaborative program in in Michigan, um, and I just wonder if you could explain a little bit about about what that looks like, and then also what advocates can think about um, in in other communities where they're not partnered with you in that specific way. Yeah, so um, we're really fortunate with our hotline and our relationship with Michigan Department of Corrections because uh, we have several projects with them. But through our hotline and, and even our survivor outreach services, we have uh, resource guides where we are able to connect 
survivors who have our, our packets with um, rape crisis centers within the community. And also just other people who provide support services for people who are in prison. Uh, so I would say for even advocates, it's good to, to build that relationship with the facility and have a better understanding of, of the needs of folks. Um, our understanding of the economic barriers that male survivors face really comes from hearing stories on our hotline. Um, so any type of communication that you're able to have with survivors on the inside can be helpful. Um, not only for them to receive that type of support service they need, but for you to be able to understand their realities and understand how you can be a better support. Um, sometimes we know we can't help. I know for us, hearing that someone is in um, an integrated system, this is in Vermont, in an integrated system where they um, are in jail and have have a bail for jail, but because it's integrated, they're also in prison, you know, and still treated as if it's it's, it's like a prison. Um, we felt that we felt, you know, that it it sucks that someone had to be in there for two hundred dollars, you know, and was not able to to leave because of that reason. So, for folks who are um, for advocates, I would say building that relationship or having even an understanding of who is already working with folks who are in prison can be the most helpful because sometimes they have resources that can be a better support uh, than you can. And I know we're all limited, you know, what we can do. So um, just building relationships with folks and even talking to, a lot of times talk to callers about um, who was out there. What organizations are you working with that have helped and supported you? And that's uh, helped us to be able to reach out to other organizations and at least have an understanding of what type of services they provide. Those are some great tips. Thanks, Tanji. Um, I know that in thinking about working with male survivors in local communities, we are we at NSVRC are really focused on reminding people of a lot of the things that you just said that. Um, that you need to be working um, in partnership with other organizations. And one of those reasons that, um, that we hear a lot is um, that when we're thinking of male survivors, a lot of male survivors might not be showing up to a sexual assault center for services, might not know that that's a place that they can go. And so among all the reasons that you're mentioning, um, just forming those partnerships and learning who's doing that work and how you can teach them about sexual assault and how you can learn from those partners about about their work can really be a great way to um, to serve male survivors. So I so appreciate you uh, focusing on that. Yeah. And, you know, um, like you mentioned, too, sometimes people don't even know that they can have access to that. And um, I also want to mention, too, that uh, for some survivors, um, they're also facing economic abuse in their relationships. So um, they could be, you know, from another prisoner or even like protective pairing situation. Uh, and that can be included uh, forced into crime or sex work, controlling commissary purchases, um, their partner refusing to let them work or interfering with their jobs. So um, we've had a couple like survivors that I've, you know, written letters with and talked on the phone with um, who've had these experiences too. So. Uh, it's like, it's, it's that intersectionality of, of, of being in prison and being in an abusive relationship and also um, facing economic barriers too. And specifically uh, because of how men are socialized around 
um, finances and around being the provider uh, for some men that can even for them question their their manhood too. Um, we know that there is a big stigma around sexual violence to men who are in prison. Um, and sometimes we, we hear often too where people feel like their masculinity was questioned because of sexual violence. Um, and in the same case, to be forced into sex work or to force into crime can, can still be harmful um, to that person. Uh, so those stereotypes pop up a lot where someone may feel like they are less of a man because they are not able to provide or because they're being forced into something that they don't want to do. Um, and for us, we, we do spend time talking to survivors about that, about what that experience is to not be able to fully be who they want to be. Um, and also we have to remind them too that a lot of a lot of what they, they're feeling comes from messages from society and pressure. Uh, and that they still, you know, still have a right to be free from sexual violence. And that's not a part of their penalty and they don't deserve what happened. And it does not make them less of a man because of these things that are, that are happening to them. That's great. Thank you for focusing on kind of that socialization aspect and what, um, um, yeah, how it impacts somebody's response to trauma. Um, before before I move forward, you mentioned a term, protective pairing, and I am hoping that you could kind of talk a little bit about what that is maybe for listeners who might not be familiar. Yeah, so protective pairing is when someone is in a relationship for their own safety. Um, and sometimes it can be because the person is telling them, uh, if you're with me, then I will keep you safe. Or it could be um, them being with someone because they believe the person will keep them safe. And they and that can that safety can come from actual physical safety. Um, it can come from finances. So someone providing financially for them. Um, and because of like, you know, the realities of being in prison, sometimes a person may feel like that is their only choice. It's to be with someone um, who is able to support, help them, but a lot of times that comes with a cost. Um, and that cost can be violence. It can be pressure to commit a crime. Um, and a lot of the other like relationship abuse things we, we spoke about. Thank you. Um, so I know that in our field, when we're thinking about people who are incarcerated and male survivors who are incarcerated, at least my perception is, and I don't know if this is your perception, but sometimes we... Um, we don't see the conversation going kind of beyond life behind bars. So remembering that people are, um, are released and um, they are still um, having these experiences of carrying, carrying trauma. And it might look um, different than people who haven't had the experience of having been incarcerated. So could you also talk a little bit about just the realities of life after being released and what, advocates at sexual assault centers should know about working with male survivors um, who had been incarcerated after after they've been released? Yeah, so um, inside a facility we talked about, there is limited access to emotional support. After being released, that really does not change for survivors who are formerly incarcerated. Um, and that is a lot of times they have little or no access to services after being released. 
Uh, the reality is some even, you know, victim service organizations don't have the capacity to support formerly incarcerated folks. And usually it's because they haven't done that work before or haven't prepared or are not prepared to serve survivors who are formerly incarcerated. Um, and sometimes it's a policy thing that they it's not in place, but other times it's just because it's not something that's thought of. A lot of times people who are in prison are overlooked um, and and not served at all, underserved. Uh, so there are some barriers that are there. And um, the truth too is sometimes there's some apprehension about working with people who've been in detention. There's some bias against formerly incarcerated folks. And um, in general, people sometimes believe that if someone is in prison or if someone has you know, been in jail, that they're bad. Uh, and that contributes to them being overlooked for services. So the first thing is, is just addressing that reality that um, just because someone has committed a crime, has spent time in prison, they still did not deserve sexual violence. And uh, I would say for rape crisis centers, just to think about what your bottom line is. Um, if you are there to support survivors of sexual assault and you believe that no one deserves sexual assault, uh, are there limits to that? You know, and if they are limits, then you want to confront like, why are there limits for people who are formerly incarcerated? Um, a lot of times people don't know that there are resources available um, for them after being released. And uh, also too, sometimes when a person is formally incarcerated, after being released, they may not be able to find work. It may be difficult for them to, um, you know, to make money. And sometimes they have different priorities. You know, if your Red Crisis Center is in, an area that does not have public transportation, if a survivor doesn't have a car or access to a bus system or the, not, not the ability to get there um, because of you know an economic barrier, because of not having a car, or not having money for transportation or not being able to you know, get there, that's, that's a barrier for them. So just thinking about how programs can be more accessible for formerly incarcerated folks, um, especially folks who are who are lower income, who are poor, who don't who don't have money at all after being released. That's awesome. I love um, I love that you started talking about or about um, how some victim service organizations don't have the capacity, um, but you've also mentioned that you know it's it is their responsibility to build that capacity. <laughs> so, um, so I really appreciate the way that you framed that. And I wonder if you could share any, I don't know, stories or anecdotes about um, things that you think organizations can do to build capacity or, or things that you have seen organizations um, do in order to build that capacity so they can be ready to um, truly serve um, all survivors in their communities, as you, as you said, they must be able to do. Yeah, you know, and I, it really starts, I believe it starts internally. It starts uh, with internal conversations amongst the organization. Reviewing policies. Is there a policy saying that you cannot serve certain people? Um, and if there is, like, change it. You know, figure out how you can change it. And, um, and making sure that people feel welcome. So it even comes down to, like, what kind of images are up? How your services are presented to the community? Um, and, and of course, thinking, I don't think that anyone should ever shy away from any biases that they have, but confront it head on. So, um, 
if you know that there is some biases happening within your organization, um, training, you know, talking to other organizations that work with folks who are incarcerated. And um, we, I would say for us, like I can personally say I've um, spent time with our resource guys I mentioned earlier, calling and talking to people and asking, do you support, <laughs> you know, do you have services that are available for incarcerated, formerly incarcerated people? Um, and some people were like, yeah, we do. We actually do groups inside of facilities, you know, pre-pandemic, we do groups inside facilities and we have a relationship with the facility. And for other folks, that's not the case at all, where um, they were like, well, no, we just don't do it, you know? And um, there is this, this thought that because someone, again, is in prison that they're bad. And I think that's the first step is to address any type of bias that's there. Um, and connect with other folks, but also to, um, I would say connecting to with the local, like whatever the prison or jail is that is around there, especially if you are around prison and jail. Uh, we did a training recently where we add, we had uh, corrections officers there and also um, folks who worked at Rick Crisis Centers and we asked what their relationships were like. And a lot of people said they did not have relationship with the corrections facility at all, or they didn't have, like they, it was no, or they didn't have a relationship with the rape crisis center. So that relationship building is especially important. Um, if we're doing, you know, people-centered kind of work, we have to remember that when someone is coming back into the community, they're not coming back um, with everything that they need. And so as, as support services folks, the best way to do it is to band together and to figure out how we can offer that support together and then refer, you know, if you don't have that. I, um, I, I just spoke to like um, a young man recently on our hotline who is scheduled to be released next year. He went in when he was 17 and he's uh, due to come out when he's around 23, 24. And he was worried. His big, his, he was worried about coming, like being released and being expected to be an adult, but not having that experience, not having the same experiences as other 24 year olds um, or expected to pay bills, which is a big thing that he talked about was, I don't know how I'm gonna pay bills when, I, you know, when, I, when I'm out and I don't really know what it is I can do. So these are real people who have you know, real issues and the best thing that we can do as support folks is to continue to work together um, and continue to figure out what those needs are. And if you can't meet a need, you know, doing that research and finding out who might be able to meet that need. Great. I love that message. I feel like, um, I don't know, I feel like that's a great summary of just all the work that we're trying to do in this movement <laughs> beyond male survivors who are or have been incarcerated. So um, I really appreciate you, um, Tanji, bringing bringing that message here and making it specific to um, male survivors who are incarcerated or have been incarcerated. Um, I know you mentioned earlier that um, male socialization and gender stereotypes are um, really important to understand um, as advocates are approaching uh, working with men who are incarcerated. Um, is, there, is there anything else that you wanted to say about that thinking now of realities of life after being released? How... Um, how maleness, masculinity, and um, any kind of stigma related to male socialization um, is is important for advocates to know working with men um, after they've been released? 
Yeah. So um, the first part is like, there are a lot of stereotypes that are harmful and put pressure on people, you know, that, and if you don't meet that, that stereotype, then it can make a person feel like they are less than a man or it can, you know, have other people judge him. And the truth is there are some labels that men feel more comfortable embracing. Sometimes a man that, and not in a way that's toxic, he can embrace being strong and tough and brave. So I think advocates should realize, like, you know, recognize that too, that for some men, financially providing is something that's important. Even after, you know, after being released in, in detention, it's something that is still important. For some people, especially people who um, are, are a lot of times going right back into the community they left before they were in prison. So if a person before they came in was in a community that was poor or they, you know, didn't have money or they, you know, do what they had to do to make money. Um, and when they come back out like in that same environment, some people may be facing that same pressure to make money in ways that are not always legal. Um, and so that's a, that's a reality. Uh, recidivism rates are high, you know, and people, um, I think reentry, a lot of, we'll, we'll talk about reentry at some point, but when coming back into the community, um, for some folks, that is an enormous amount of pressure to take on some of those male stereotypes of being the provider. That doesn't shift or change. Uh, so it is possible that someone is still facing that pressure after being released. And I think it's important for advocates to understand that reality and to um, address and acknowledge and validate the fact that, yes, the person may want to be a provider. Yes, they want to make money. They still want to be brave and tough and strong. And also letting them know, too, that if they don't fully meet these stereotypes the way that other people expect them to, um, that that's okay. Uh, there's a very good documentary called Feminists on Sell Back Live. Um, and in the documentary, they have a group session. It's on missions on um, that pressure to commit a crime in order to support their family. And now being behind bars, they still can't, you know, support their family. So um, I, I, men still do face a lot of those pressures. And after being released, um, again, that doesn't go away. So advocates uh, is, can think of like, you know, ways to offer that support while still validating parts of their masculinity that they embrace. Thanks, Tanji. I love I love the way you said that. Um, really, really appreciating you um, talking about about stereotypes and how advocates can um, can approach the reality of of gender and socialization in a way that meets the needs of of the survivors. Um, in their communities. And um, I know that you in particular have provided some, um, some leadership in this moment um, where um, our country is talking about racial justice, perhaps in some new ways, even though these are not new issues, and activism is happening in different communities. And um, I know that you have done some really great thinking and work around JDI's role um, in in this moment and just in general, JDI's role in addressing racial injustice. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, um, especially in light of this conversation on male survivors who are incarcerated and economic justice, and, and also just what you would say to advocates at sexual assault centers about how working with male survivors who are currently or formerly incarcerated 
can be or is um, part of racial justice work? Yeah, um, at JBI, one thing that you know, when the up, you know, this uprising, this, this, you know, civil rights uprising that we're having right now, when things were first starting to to spark and um, more conversations are being had, we, you know, were fully recognizing the fact that because we work with people who are in prison, and because the majority of folks in prison are black and brown men, that our work is also racial justice work that we are also doing work to ensure that people feel safe um, and that we are also recognizing that discrimination does happen inside prison. Um, we talked to survivors who have been targeted for sexual violence because of their race, because, uh, or there, there are some expectations on people or people carry those same, again, like those biases and stereotypes against, against black and brown men and feel like they are more aggressive, more tough, and need to be controlled a bit more. Um, so we have had some really intentional conversations at JDI about how our work fits into that. Uh, we also have some resources on our website around police brutality because uh, it's possible too, you know, some folks too are sexually assaulted while in police custody. Um, which contributes to police brutality. That is, that's still a part of it. Um, so we recognize that uh, the need for conversations around racial justice does not end and it should not end. Um, we cannot, especially when working with survivors who are incarcerated, we can't, again, ignore the fact that majority of the people are black and brown men. And so because of that, I would say for rape crisis centers, it's important to, um, be well-versed in understanding of the pressures and the impact that Black men face, you know, and, and be, be really mindful of that and how that fits into the framework of sexual violence. If we already are, or the, the stigma around sexual violence and the social perception of being sexually assaulted in prison is a form of weakness, think about how that can impact someone who is also being told that they need to be extra tough and extra strong because of their maleness and their blackness being intersected. So um, just really confront, thinking about those things first and not, not shying away from that conversation and not feeling like this does not include your work because at the root of it is oppression and power and control is still at that root. Um, so I, again, I'm always about working internally to make sure that externally you're able to provide the, the, the best support and work. And so keeping those things in mind that um, men who we talk to on our hotline are still aware of what is happening on the outside. They're still aware that people are being killed by police, still aware that racial violence is prevalent and they, feel, they still feel that impact. Um, I know I've talked to callers too who are black men who are in facilities in predominantly white counties. Um, I've talked to people who work with corrections, you know, who feel like working sometimes as, as, a black, as a black man in prison, having all white corrections officers, you know, and feeling like they can't fully be themselves or fully even, you know, breathe and be, able to, to all have support and not ha even feel comfortable talking to people in prison. So uh, I think as often as we can, we have to remember the realities of folks and the more that we're able to understand 
their experiences, the better support that we're, we're able to give. Thank you so much, Tanji. That was so great. And um, I just want to ask if you have anything else that you wanted to say um, that you didn't get a chance to in our conversation today. Uh, I would just say, um, again, we have resources on JDI's website available. Uh, we have a couple. Uh, we have a couple webinars just specifically talking about um, men of color and working with men of color, uh, and also to just just trainings um, to talk about better ways to support survivors. So. Um, thank you for having <laughs> for having me um, and being able to talk about uh, economic justice and um, how that is relate relates to male survivors. Great. Well, thanks again. Thanks for coming and, and talking to us on this podcast today, Chanji. And as you already said, we um, you know JDI has a lot of resources, and we will invite listeners to learn more about working with male survivors and also all about JDI's work. Uh, by checking out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resource on the Go. For more resources and information about understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual assault, visit our website at www.nsvrc.org. You can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc.org.